Well, I'm glad to be here with you tonight, and I am very glad to see all of you here. Uh, Brother Tim beat me to the punch. I was going to ask how many of you are in your first semester, and it's quite encouraged, encouraging to see all of you here in your first semester to kind of provide a calibration for you. Uh, this is my 85th semester at UT. <laughs> and essentially, from the beginning, I have been the faculty advisor for this group. And if you just look around this room right now and see what the Lord has gathered here, multiply that times 85, then you will realize what I consider to be my primary legacy as a professor here at UT. I've taught a lot of students, won teaching awards, uh, I've run research awards uh, all over the world. Uh, but what really is my lasting legacy is uh, right here. And so I am uh, so pleased to be able to share with you tonight briefly. I'm going to condense one course into 30 minutes. <laughs> now, believe it or not, uh, even though uh, I am an old man, I was a student one day myself. I grew up in Ohio in a small town, uh, excellent family. We were churchgoers. I was lead, uh, leader, president of uh, the church youth group. Went off to college, I studied engineering at Ohio State. The whole way through that entire experience, I never one time heard the gospel that uh, if I wanted to really be a Christian, I needed to receive the Lord Jesus into me. Uh, at the end of my studies at Ohio State, I was accepted to MIT, also got married. And so I took my bride and we headed off to Boston and uh, she, uh, and I were very much uh, wanting to have a life centered on faith. And so we uh, started attending a, a big historic church there in the Boston area. And that fall, first semester, I was in my doctoral studies. Uh, one time they had a visitor come in and that visitor preached the gospel that if I really wanted to be a Christian, I needed to make the decision to open my heart to the Lord and receive him into me. And I did that. That was in November of 1967, nearly a half a century ago. <laughs> well, on that Sunday morning, I was in uh, the back of this huge big old building, uh, and I was an usher. My wife was sitting clear up front. She was singing in the choir. She loves to sing. Uh, the Lord touched her in the same way. And so this person called everybody who had opened their heart to the Lord to come forward to the altar. And she and I met right up there at the altar. <laughs> Tell me that was not a good way to start our marriage. <laughs> and it was interesting. Nearly half the congregation came up. Quite, quite an experience. Well, at that time, I was just uh, uh, embarking on uh, 
earning my doctorate in mechanical engineering at MIT, the top engineering school in the world. And uh, very exciting time in that uh, realm, but also very exciting because, wow, I know what it really is to be a, a Christian now. And I, I wanted to pursue the Lord. And I was nearly immediately confronted by the concept that if I was going to be a top-level scientist and also be a top-level Christian, there was a problem there. Those two don't go together. So nearly immediately upon becoming a Christian and continuing to develop in my scientific capacity and career, I, I began to, uh, to study on both sides of this issue science and the Bible. And I cannot tell you how many, I'm sure thousands of hours, I've invested in very, very serious study of trying to figure out, can science and the Bible go together? Well, what you believe about this is not at all related to the quality of your Christian faith or whether or not you're a genuine Christian. Uh, this is not an article of the Christian faith that you need to believe in a particular way about in order to be a genuine Christian. Everybody has their own perspective on it. In fact, as I learn more, my own perspective is continually changing, uh, becoming more rich, becoming more full. But I long, long ago came to the conclusion that if you really know science at its heart, in an accurate and a truthful way, and if you know the Bible in a thorough way con uh, with a consistent interpretation from Genesis through Revelation, then there in no way exists any inherent problem. There are a lot of concepts that such a problem exists, but as I have learned and studied and read and considered myself and on and on, uh, I've come to realize, and many of the leading uh, scientific thinkers in the world have come to the same conclusion that a lot of these uh, so-called conflicts between science and Bible are simply fabrications. They're false. They're not true. They're not based on fact. They're not based on fact from the Bible. They're not based on fact from science. And so the title of what I'm talking about is Science and the Bible, Different but in Full Harmony. And so that is a, a theme I pursue. As uh, Tim said, I, with the uh, prodding of uh, some freshmen a couple of years ago, I, I actually teach a course on this. Here's my textbook. <laughs> Uh, I see at least one of my former students here in class. <clears throat> I did not chase her away. She's back for more. <laughs> so we read this book every day in class, plus we read some very robust scientific thinking in class also on a regular way. And uh, one, one of the themes in my class is you don't, you don't have to think in a particular way to earn an A in the course. What you have to do is be genuine and honest about uh, what you present concerning your thoughts on this issue. 
and I do not at all enforce my own perspective onto the students. Tonight's a little bit different. I do have a perspective, and I'm going to share it with you all. <laughs> you may like it. Uh, you may like it 99%. Uh, you may like it 64%. You may like it 3%. But however much you like it, you need to be genuine about it and know why uh, you have that position. So there's a pretty long outline. I may well not cover all of it, but uh, there are some points that I would like to make. First of all, to talk about science. Uh, I've given my uh, professional career to science. Uh, I won't talk about all the stuff I've done, but believe me, I have done a huge amount of things in science and uh, enjoyed it all the time. In fact, I really, really enjoy science. Every single day, I absolutely look forward to doing more science. It is exciting, it is invigorating, it is vibrant. Uh, I am a huge advocate of it. <clears throat> I like to talk about it. So, we need to consider how science views the entire universe. That includes the physical universe and that includes uh, the living universe also. And then we're going to consider how the Bible views the same thing. Uh, and science has one way of viewing uh, the universe and how it operates. Absolutely, it's valid. Okay, we, we believe in science. We have a lot of confidence in science. The Bible also has an absolutely valid perspective on viewing the universe. It's different than science, though. Uh, the thing of it is, the two of them fit together. You know, we've got the scientific view, and we've got the biblical view, and each one has its own realm of validity. And when you put them together, they don't cross each other out. They, <clears throat> some people say they interdigitate. And they provide a more complete and whole view of what is going on. From my perspective, uh, science, well, science to me I think I could say is experiential. You know, it's, it's very uh, objective and so forth, but it's also experiential. Absolutely, my Christian faith is experiential. And as a human being, uh, it's hard for me to, to say I know somebody else who has a more complete human experience than I do. Now, you, I'm not saying you have to be a scientist to have a complete human experience. Hey, you can be a history major and have a complete human experience. You got history here and, you, and your faith. So they're not crossing each other out. They fit together uh, in a compatible way. Now, what does science do? Science tells us about how the physical, the material universe functions. Uh, in science, we call this processes. So things occur in science. Uh, we study them, physics, chemistry, uh, biology, and uh, various other realms of science. And we identify how things change when you do something to it. Processes occur. If you take one of my courses, 
you're going to be saturated with the word processes. <laughs> Science relies, and I'm just going to march down through the outline here. Science relies on observable and measurable features of the physical universe in order to understand how it functions. In other words, uh, in science, uh, we say, show me the data. Nobody's going to believe anything if you don't have the data to back it up. And you're not going to have the data if you don't have some way to measure what you're interested in. And, and so this is really at the heart of science. This is our orientation. You need to be able to detect, transduce. That's, that's a key word. You need to be able to transduce and turn into a signal what you're looking for. And you need to be able to prove it. A lot of times you hear scientists say, I'm not going to believe this until you can prove it. Uh, if you're taking math, uh, you're going to encounter things called proofs. <laughs> and that uh, spills over into other areas of science also. So if you can't prove it, nobody's going to believe it. And if other people are not able to reproduce what you have done, then also they're not going to believe it. So your data needs to be true, needs to be accurate, needs to be honest, and so forth. And so those are all characteristics of science. And science can tell us how, H-O-W, how things happen. Science cannot tell us why, W-H-Y, things happen. Science is about how things happen, not about why things happen. Okay? Roman 2, the Bible. The Bible primarily tells us about God and about God's purpose. And how God fulfills his purpose by the involvement of human beings who love him, open their hearts to him so he can come into them. This is by a process the Bible calls God's economy. I particularly like the first annotation, the first footnote in the Bible, Genesis 1-1, and this is kind of a long footnote, but I've uh, copied it here into the outline. So Genesis 1-1 is perhaps the most famous verse in the entire Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay? Now, an explanation of what we're going to encounter as we move on into the Bible. This starts... The Bible composed of two testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament, is the complete written divine revelation of God to man. The Bible tells us about God. It also tells us about God's purpose as follows in the next sentence. The major revelation in the entire Bible is the unique 
divine economy of the unique triune God. Now, you may not have ever heard of the unique divine economy, but that occurs as a theme throughout the Bible. Basically, the Bible tells us about God, it tells us about God's purpose, and it tells us about how man participates with God so God can achieve his purpose. This joint participation between God and man is called God's economy. Uh, that word occurs uh, in many locations in the New Testament. The Old Testament is a picture of how God with man achieves his purpose. Uh, and then in the New Testament, in the, in the writings of Paul, this term, God's economy, comes up over and over again. I could give a whole lecture on that, but I'm not going to do it. I will say, though, the book of 1 Timothy is an entire book devoted to God's economy. So if you want to know about God's economy, that is a very good place to read. Now, <clears throat> because the Bible tells us about God's purpose, that tells us why things are the way they are. That tells us why things happen the way they happen. That tells us why we have the opportunity to participate with God in achieving his purpose. The Bible is a why book. Science is a how perspective. Those are very different. The Bible, here, capital C, the Bible is not intended to provide scientific inf information. It's not intended to be supplementary reading to your physics book. <laughs> Thankfully. <laughs> Neither is your physics book intended to be supplementary reading to the Bible. However, you can learn important, interesting things from both your physics book and from the Bible, and they fit together. They give you uh, a better understanding of the whole picture. And so, for instance, uh, one thing a lot of people do is try and extract uh, scientific information from the Bible on such things as the age of the universe. Personally, I don't think there is any value or merit in doing that. That information does not exist in the Bible. The way I read the Bible consistently from cover to cover. Okay? And people who try and extract purpose People who try and extract information about scientific processes from the Bible, who te which tells us about God's purpose, uh, end up eventually, in my perspective, uh, having a problem and oftentimes causing problems for other people also. Uh, as I talk uh, about the Bible with students, I encounter a, a common concept, and that is uh, 
a widespread confusion about why do we have the Bible. An awful lot of people who are Christians and, at, and who are not Christians view the Bible as a manual on how you should behave so you can get to heaven. Okay, that, that's just the common concept. Uh, it's kind of the Christian equivalent of the Koran or, or whatever. That is not at all what the Bible conveys to us. The Bible conveys who God is, what God's purpose is, and how we co-participate with God and his economy in achieving his purpose. There's another whole meeting's worth of sharing that I'm not going to touch at all. Now, you may uh, hear people asserting that if you, as a Christian, are unable to prove your faith, the key word being prove, then it's not valid. Well, that perspective in itself is not valid. Our faith is not about proof. That's somebody taking the scientific paradigm and trying to enforce it onto the Christian experience. It just doesn't work. Uh, I would say that is complete nonsense. And uh, again, there's another whole lecture, but uh, if you encounter somebody that says, you know, I'm not going to believe if you can't prove this, well, uh, <clears throat> I would love to sit down with that person. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to resist getting into that. But that's just in the wrong realm. Okay? Now, uh, Romans 3. Both science and the biblical perspectives about creation are valid. A lot of, a lot of uh, very genuine Christians I encounter have grown up with the concept that if you're really a Christian, there's a lot of science you have to throw out. You just can't believe it. You can't accept it. True, proven, there's a word, science does not conflict with the Bible. It does not conflict with our faith. A lot of times, science is misrepresented for what it really is, for various purposes, for various reasons, and that is presented as causing a conflict. But that's not true science. If you encounter something like that, you need to question what you're hearing. In fact, you need to question everything that you hear. Improve, and, and come to a uh, situation of personal peace and comfort in, in what you believe about this. If it's scientific, you need to prove it. If it's in the realm of faith, then uh, actually there is a different kind of a proof, but it's spiritual. It's in our spirit. Uh, and so uh, I would say Roman numeral B excuse me, capital letter B, uh, many of the world-leading scientists, uh, some are Christians, some are not Christians, have come to the same conclusion, that there is not an uh, incompatibility between faith and science. They are simply complementary, different perspectives on understanding and applying uh, 
an understanding of the operation of life and the physical universe. Uh, and so I'm going, I'm keeping my eye on the clock and I'm skipping down. I would say capital D is an interesting statement. Science is incapable of addressing issues in the spiritual realm. As I said, science is based on being able to measure and uh, uh, whatever it's addressing and being able to prove it. The fact of it is, there is no transducer that you can hook up to an instrument that's going to pick up your faith. Yeah, you can take any scientific transducer and stick it in my forehead or whatever, or image me with it, whatever it might be, uh, <clears throat> from the perspective of detecting my faith, and it's always going to give a zero reading. There's no way for any physical transducer to detect the reality of our faith. Okay? And so, again, this comes back. Well, you know, if you can't measure it, if you can't prove it, then it's not real. Well, I would assert that many of the issues uh, that we experience as humans in the realm of our faith are more real than in the physical realm. People, humans, get let down all the time by what goes on in the physical realm. Uh, uh, lots of examples, but uh, for instance, if you put a lot of confidence in the stock market, you have been riding on a yo-yo the past week. <laughs> okay? Uh, and, and so... I'm not saying don't have stocks. I got a lot of stocks. <laughs> but my real stock is in the Lord Jesus within me. Okay? There's a huge difference. Now, I'd like to talk in Romans 4 about the uh, two great process, so this is related to science, mysteries concerning man that have not been answered by science. So, in the entire universe, human beings are the absolutely unique aspect or feature of the entire universe. Nothing else matches human beings. And we have some particular characteristics that are very obvious, but science has been unable to explain how they came about. There are two of these, and I will assert that both of these characteristics are absolutely critical for God to fulfill His purpose. And so God took care of ensuring that He had the proper living being within His entire creation by which He could fulfill His purpose. Okay, the first great mystery concerning humans <clears throat> is how did in an essentially instantaneous time frame humans and human culture come to exist on planet Earth? I, I believe in science. I absolutely believe in evolution. Uh, UT has been a leading institution in the science of evolution 
for many, many decades. I've been here a long time and it was already a world leader when I arrived. So I absolutely believe in evolution, but there is no measurable, verifiable, provable, believable <laughs> uh, process that explains how all of a sudden, and all the data, you know, when you look at the history of uh, species that lived on Earth, all the data showed nearly instantaneously human beings were living with a very advanced culture beyond anything that uh, had ever existed before, beyond anything that exists right now. Monkeys are not having a meeting like we're having. <laughs> and they never will. In fact, monkeys do not build movie theaters to go watch movies about humans. <laughs> you laugh. That's ridiculous. That is inc incredulous. But suddenly humans were building advanced cultures, advanced Structures. I don't know if any of you are civil engineers, but uh, uh, structures that the early human cultures built, uh, the more we measure them, the more we realize how sophisticated they are. Even beyond that, the human species is the only living species that, number one, has an awareness of God and number two, has a desire to worship God. This characteristic occurs in human cultures throughout the world. Now, we're gathered here tonight as Christians. And, you know, I would say, and I think everybody here probably agrees, this is the true way to worship God. But other cultures take all sorts of approaches to worship God that are different than being a Christian. The key point is those cultures have an awareness of God and a realization of the need to be worshiping the God that they realize. How did evolutionary pressures result over a period of time in some process with that outcome? Okay, the Bible says in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, that God created man in his own image after his likeness to have dominion over the rest of his creation. Okay, uh, <clears throat> so that is an outward expression of God and inward being that matches God. In Genesis 2-7, it says God breathed into man the breath or the spirit of life. And so now, on the earth, in the entire universe, there is a species who is prepared to receive God as life. Eventually, God became a man himself, and went through a process of living and crucifixion and resurrection and ascension so that he could become the life-giving spirit it says in 1 Corinthians 15.45, So when we open our hearts to him, he can come into us as the Spirit. Okay, so this is absolutely key for God to achieve his purpose. Number two, 
great mystery. Only humans have the intelligent, creative use of language. No other species communicates via language the way humans can. Uh, all kinds of species create in all sorts of ways. I live out in the country and I love to sit out at night or I love to go down into my woods, which is away from all the other noises, during the daytime and listen to all the species communicating together. I hear chirping and croaking and uh, raccoon noises and sometimes the coyotes are howling. <coughs> well, that's nothing like when I communicate with my wife, okay? <laughs> so man has this absolutely unique capability for communication and I don't know if anybody's a linguistics major here, but that's one of the most fascinating areas of study as to how languages evolve and are structured and so forth. But uh, the fact of the matter is, nobody has figured out how languages got started. Only humans have the unique capacity for language, but every human has to be taught how to use language. This is very, very well known and documented. So if you take those two facts and you go back, okay, you learn to speak, to use a language from your parents and your parents from your grandparents and your grandparents from your great-grandparents and you go back and you go back and you go back and I think it says on here, capital C, who taught Adam how to speak? <laughs> and so uh, the leading linguistic scholars in the world have realized what there has to be what they call a proto-language that exists. It's not identified but Something had to happen to get language started. Well, consider, language is absolutely critical for God to achieve his purpose, okay? God, by his very nature, uh, the Gospel of John says, God is the Word, okay? The Word is in languages. In fact, this Word has been translated into, I'm not sure how many languages. How many, Jose Luis? 3,500 languages, 2,500, okay, still a big number. <laughs> so all those languages are how we know who God is, what his purpose is, and how we cooperate with him in his economy. Without language, I'm not here with you. If I don't use language, how, how much are you gonna get from me? I'll, I'll do a five second drill. Okay, so what did you get out of that? <laughs> uh, without language, there would not be a University of Texas. There'd be no courses to take. Uh, without language, we have no way to communicate with God. No prayer, no fellowship amongst the saints, no ministry to lead us on, no praying over the word. Uh, God's uh, economy just does not occur. So what does the Bible say? Well, if we go to Genesis chapter 2, we see that God imparted man with language. Uh, man was created. He was put in the Garden of Eden. And it says, God spoke 
to man in the Garden of Eden. He gave the instructions for his living. He is supposed to live by partaking of the tree of life. Yeah, we see that in Genesis 3. <clears throat> and he is not supposed to partake of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Okay, so God spoke to man. And this was for his purpose. What is the very next thing that is described in Genesis 2? God brought all the animals to man. And he told Adam, okay, I want you to give a name to every one of these animals. So obviously, at that point, man was empowered with language. Now, I cannot tell you what that process was. But I can tell you that it happened for God's purpose and how privileged we are to be able to use language, to praise the Lord, to sing, all sorts of things. Okay, so these are two uh, characteristics of humans absolutely critical to God achieving his purpose that are not described by scientific processes, by any known mechanism, but the Bible tells us how God, who is the creator, intervened into his creation to provide us so he could fulfill his purpose. Now, I have not finished, but I'm just going to say that it's close to time for me to finish. I'm going to say Romans 5 is about the new creation. This is a wonderful part of the Bible, and I encourage you to get into it. There's some verses here, but I'd like to use the remainder of the time if anybody has any questions. Better for you to talk than just to listen to me talk the whole time. So we do have a little bit of time if anybody would like to ask any questions, I surely hope so, because I don't want to have to keep talking. Oh, yes, great. How do you answer the question, whenever people ask you, the Bible's been translated so many times, how can you trust what it says? How do you answer that when people ask? Okay. Can you repeat the question, please? Yeah, just going to. That's an excellent question. How can we trust the Bible? The Bible has been translated over and over again. Uh, possibility that there could be errors in the translations and can we have confidence in the Bible? Well, there are scholars, uh, professors actually, of classics and uh, the ancient languages who have uh, studied this for a long time. And it turns out the Bible is uh, the most studied, translated, and considered to be accurate old manuscript that exists amongst anything that we have. Okay? And so I am not an expert in it, but I know personally people who are, and I take their word for it, that we can, as much as any book you can pick up and read, have confidence in the accuracy of what we find in the Bible. It's been checked over you know, there's all the Dead Sea Scrolls and on and on and on. And, and so uh, scholars for generations have made it their business to check the veracity of these writings and how they are handed down to us. And uh, they say quite uniformly, it's not challenged, 
this is the most accurately presented ancient text that exists. So there you go. <laughs> yes. Whoa! <laughs> you, are you a freshman? Okay, you have a bright future ahead. <laughs> if you can formulate and ask a question like that. That is the question of all questions. What is God's purpose? And the ancillary question is, <laughs> Don't take that as a divine intervention. <laughs> okay, the ancillary question is, if we know God's purpose, what should we as Christians do about it? Okay, uh, we could have a whole semester of <laughs> Thursday night meetings on that. And uh, I've, uh, let, let me try and say something in just one minute, okay? Uh, and actually, there's a lot of ways to answer this, and they all come from the Bible. But God's purpose is uh, to have a wife, okay? Uh, this starts out in, uh, as a picture in the very beginning of the Bible with Adam and Eve was created to match Adam out of his own side, okay? Eventually, if you read the whole way through the Bible, which I hope you do a lot, I was so glad to see the Bible reading schedule. Okay, I have read my Bible cover to cover and cover to cover and cover to cover and cover to cover to cover. And I cannot tell you how many times I've done it, but I read it every day and I do it every year. Okay, this is the way to be healthy, spiritually and mentally. Keep your head on straight. So I encourage you with that. Now, uh, Revelation, at the end of the Bible, what do we have? God finally has his wife. Okay? He is married. He's satisfied. He has his match. And it's by men receiving his life into them individually, but in a corporate sense also, and eventually being transformed, loving him, and uh, telling the Lord to return. Yeah, we cannot wait any longer for you to come back and take us as your bride. And that's how the Bible ends. That is God's purpose. That is how we participate in it. It's a wonderful divine romance. Okay? Now, there's lots of embellishments on that through the Bible, but just keep that in mind. <laughs> okay, uh, time for maybe one more. Uh, oh, okay. Not to kill the mood or anything, but kind of piggybacking off of that question, when pointing out the fact that the Bible is intended to show God's, to reveal God's purpose in creation, and 
in that sense that that's what the Bible is for. And then, since the Bible is then not a manual for how to get to heaven, why is it, as a hypothetical question, why is it necessary to follow the laws inside the Bible if it's not a manual to get to heaven? Okay. Congratulations again. <laughs> okay, uh, the perspective of following the law, following the laws, derives from the Old Testament. Thankfully, we have the New Testament. God came as Christ and fulfilled the law on our behalf. And so, what happens is, when we now receive Him as our life and live Him as our source within our spirit, expressed out through how we live, that law is automatically fulfilled. In fact, it is fulfilled more completely, more accurately, better than anything was ever intended to in the Old Testament context. Okay? So, as Christians, our orientation is not to be law keepers, although a lot of people interpret the Bible that way. Okay? That's really, really regrettable. Uh, our obligation is to live Christ. If that is your priority, then the laws get taken care of automatically. So, so then how do you defend yourself against uh, when someone asks the sort of sweeping under the rug question of, well, if I'm a Christian and I believe in Jesus, then all of my sins are forgiven so I can live however I want to because my future sins are also forgiven. <laughs> how do you combat that question when people, when people Sure. Well, again, the answer is in the Bible. On the one hand, the Lord came as a man. He died for our sins. Our, our sins are when we disobey the law, basically. Okay? But after we receive him, which is uh, our initial experience of the, as a Christian, then we have the remainder of our life to live. And the Bible is explicitly clear that we have a responsibility. That responsibility is primarily to live by his life. And if we ignore the ultimate resource in the universe, there are consequences. Eternally, we're saved, but there are intermediate consequences which are highly undesirable. <laughs> and, and, and so we have the best equipment, but if you don't use it, uh, there's a price to be paid. Excellent line of questions. I am very, very impressed. I mean, UT is attracting the best students. <laughs> okay, uh, my time is up. And